Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Friday, January 27th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Finland and Sweden are having trouble joining NATO. Now, countries like Sweden and Finland, those are the exact sorts of nations that NATO was founded for. They're democracies. They're stable. They have a cross on their flags. Okay, just a coincidence. But we are talking about inclusion in the North Atlantic treaty organization. The chief opponents to these two northern European countries with coastlines that border parts of the Atlantic, the countries in opposition are the landlocked nation of Hungary and the 90% non-European nation of Turkey. Hungary started off with all the hope of a liberal democracy, then Viktor Orban warped the country toward autocracy. The point is, originally admitting Hungary into NATO was not controversial. They were admitted alongside Poland and the Czech Republic as former Warsaw Pact nations. It is sad what's gone on in Hungary since. Turkey, however, a little bit of a different category. Very, very un-NATO-like, even though they have been a member since 1952. But Recep Tayyip Erdogan, this guy is a gate crasher, the classic nouveau riche arriviste. The problem is, when we think of such a figure, largely or often, we have a sympathetic view. And this was shaped by many slobs versus snobs comedies. We root for the underdog against the entrenched. Think of just about every comedy starring the Marx Brothers, or think of the Rodney Dangerfield character in Caddyshack. <laughs> oh, somebody stepping a duck. <laughs> you tell him, Rodney, that snooty Judge Smalls and his highfalutin niece Lacey. But that analogy is not exactly what I'm trying to evoke when I think about Turkey within NATO. What happens when an outsider crashes the gates but is so out of line with values that we should value that it is not delightful? It's quite troubling. It's a little shameful. But Erdogan isn't like Groucho's Captain Spaulding. Spaulding, both in Caddyshack and Animal Crackers, too. Hmm, interesting. He's not like country girl Katniss Everdeen. He's more like an invasive carp than a sympathetic fish out of water. The cultural analogy that I want to reach for is one of the seedy lawyer who you might see in a TV ad. I'm Jim Adler, the Texas Hammer. When stingy insurance companies don't pay up, I get meaner than a junkyard dog. I don't growl or bark, I bite. 
There was once a time when the Bar Association didn't allow TV advertising. Then there was a time when it was tightly controlled, and the type of advertising we see now just wouldn't pass muster. Now it's basically professional wrestling tropes and the implied promise that you absolutely need an attorney who's the good kind of crazy. Rip the hides off insurance companies to get you the biggest cash award. I'm Jim the Hammer Shapiro. And not only do other members of the state bar have to live with this guy, he would get a veto on any new members admitted. That's what's going on in NATO. It's a bad situation. How bad? Well, Sweden is currently being run by neo-Nazis, and they're the sympathetic figure in this analogy. Turkey seems to have relented over the summer in terms of inclusion, but now they've gone back. They look at Sweden and Finland, and they're positively hammering these two Nordic nations. It could be strategy, a feint. could be Erdogan seeking to position himself as a pro-Putin ally, should the possibility to sue for peace ever come out. All right. Of course, we should also note that Erdogan himself faces tougher-than-usual re-election challenges, made somewhat less tough by the fact that, in contravention of the NATO charter, that imbued him with his veto powers, his country is not actually a full democracy. It is, of course, a complex set of circumstances, especially for the two countries quite wary of their aggressive neighbor, once known for the sickle and the hammer. The hammer doesn't grind, he bites to get you the money you deserve. On the show today, mistakes, I've made a few, but then again, well, enough to mention in a full and twin tig segment, so we shall. But first, this week, we learned of Oscar noms. That's what I call them, noms, short for nomination. Then there's apps, which can be short for appetizer applications. I can't get into that right now, but we can do a rundown of the Oscar nominees and what they tell us about what the Academy wants us to think about their industry. And by that, And by we, I mean Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic and the author of Cameraman, a jalapeno popper, a loaded tater skin of cinephilia, up next with Dana Stevens. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The nominees have been announced. The 832nd Academy Awards will take place in the Hayden Planetarium. I may be getting that wrong, or maybe I'm influenced by everything, everywhere, all at once. What is reality, really? The Academy Awards, for a lot of us, are a TV show to watch a lately uh, comedic enterprise, although for years they decided not to be entertaining during this show, honoring entertainment. But it's also, you know, a recognition of an artist community signaling to the world what they consider their best products, their most valuable art, eh, plus a little commerce. So I like to think about the Academy Awards for what it says about Hollywood, what it says about us, maybe a little bit of us. Us wasn't nominated, by the way, though it should have been. Joining me now is Dana Stevens. Dana is the author of Cameraman, a biography, a very well-told biography of uh, Buster Keaton. 
the dawn of cinema and the invention of the 20th century. She is a co-host of the Slate Culture Gab Fest, and she is the film critic for Slate. Hello, Dana. Dana, na, 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 as they sometimes say. Nice to talk to you, Mike. Yes. Do you like the Academy Awards still as a show, as an institution? You know, it's funny you ask that. I just finished reviewing a book about the history of the Academy Awards. And in order to do that, I had to think about nearly 100 years, 95 years now of of history of the awards and, and how I felt about it as a critic who, you know, every year, not only does it come up every spring when the actual spectacle happens, but really the whole movie year is structured by the Oscars now and all of the various run-up awards leading to them and the discourse about them and the online social media campaigns about them. I mean, the Oscars are what makes the movie year run. Yes. <laughs> and in a, in a way, what makes the film industry run, at least the commercial part of it, is, you know, obviously heavily influenced by what happens at these awards. So Yeah, yeah. As movie as moviegoers and as art appreciators, it now because of the Academy Awards, November, December, maybe January, those are the months for film. You know, it's a season now because everything that's supposedly good only gets released in that narrow window. Yeah. Well and it's even more than a season. Like Sundance just happened, right, over the last two weeks. And that is sort of the very first of each year toward what might or might not be in the Oscar conversation. So people are already talking about the 2024 Oscars, even though we haven't given out the ones yet for this year. Yeah. So it's a little like politics in that way. Um, you know, before before the election ends, you think about the next election. Most people don't like politics, though. Back to the question. Do you still like the Academy Awards? <laughs> I mean, I don't think I ever really did like them. But but I also really believe that there's, as a film critic, there's not any way of standing outside of them. There's no... There's there's not any useful position outside of them. You can scoff, you can ignore, but the fact is that if you want to be a part of the conversation about movies, you have to include that in the conversation. So do I actually root for things at the Oscars? No, not really. But I'm also sort of not bitter and cynical about them and always hope that there'll be surprises and interesting things that happen in the ceremony that don't involve violence being perpetrated on one of the presenters. And you know that that when that movies that win will be will be worthy of that win but i don't expect it to be a contest of merit at this point and i think it's just a recipe for heartbreak if you do is your disquiet your uh maybe ambivalence trending towards the uh the negative is it because the way the oscars makes its selection are imperfect and can be improved or is it just the very nature of subjectively saying that that director of a light comedy is better than that director of a cgi fest set in a alternative universe yeah and by their very nature obviously a, a cultural prize that treats a, a cultural competition as if it were a sports competition is is kind of on its face absurd. But it's also a very ancient part of our culture, right? I mean, going back to like the reason that we know who Euripides and, and Sophocles are is because they won drama competitions in ancient Greece. You know, I mean, this is what this is what civilizations do is that they award prizes for culture. And so it seems like something that for all of its imperfections and all of the, you know, potential for corruption or bribery or, you know, sort of um, shenanigans within the, the, the race and the campaigning is something that we have to work with and around. Yes, the late buzz is around Euripides. <laughs> There's a whisper campaign that the frogs was made with with uh, slave labor, which it probably was, <laughs> given, given the society. Yeah, what the wasn't time. in ancient Greece? Right. So for me, as a non-film critic, 
Uh, I like them in a way because of their signaling function. And I just need something that hasn't totally discredited itself to tell me these are movies worth seeing. And I'll find a film critic like, say, Dana Stevens or others whose year-end lists I like and try to hunt those down. And there are many, I don't, I haven't indexed for if the SAG Awards or if the New York Writers Circle more maps onto my views. But, you know, as someone who likes movies, likes to watch movies, can't watch all movies, very much likes the function of saying this movie that was supposed to be artistic and uh, anticipated actually doesn't make the cut. That's actually very useful for me in terms of uh, my time. I do appreciate the Oscars function as far as I agree with that. And I I have to say that every year, even though I sort of say, as I just said to you, I I don't root for anyone and I try to maintain a sort of critical neutrality and look at what wins and think about it without getting too disappointed if my faves don't do well. I always end up almost every year with at least one narrative that I actually care about, you know, some overlooked small movie or a small performance or just, you know, some some person that I want to see recognized after too many years of non-recognition. And so you kind of can't keep yourself from doing a little bit of fist pumping once you actually tune into that night. What's a movie you're rooting for this time or a director or a performance? You know, I haven't fully decided that yet. I'm sort of waiting to see how the campaign shakes down. They were just announced. There's lots of movies I love that are up for things. Just because I love a movie doesn't mean that I particularly care about it getting awards. Like, I love Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. But if Steven Spielberg certainly has adequate Oscar recognition at this point, and I don't particularly care if that movie gets an award. But then I think about uh, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, an animated movie that I loved last year. It was on my 10 best list. This is my bedroom. Uh, it's a bedroom, but I sleep on a piece of bread, so I just... And I was really surprised to see it on the animated film list because, it, you know, it's not Pixar, it's not Disney, it's not Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, it's not any part of a big franchise, and it's sort of a DIY endeavor that has a, a very sweet indie spirit. So just to get a nomination, although it has basically no chance of winning, is something that warmed my heart. Yeah. Um... A couple of the movies that weren't, I think it's very interesting, uh, movies that weren't nominated this year, um, because that tells us what they've, to some extent, made an artistic judgment on, but to some extent, a thematic judgment. And I think that it's often the case that there are some themes that are unignorable. One is the valorization of Hollywood. So you have the Fablemans in there, right? We're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. And your real train won't ever get broken. That's, you know, Hollywood separating itself. And maybe to some extent, that pushed out Babylon. Babylon's right in your wheelhouse. It was about the silent film era or the transition from the silent film era. My take on Babylon was any one hour was sumptuous, but all three was gluttonous. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I was not a fan. And it makes me sad because you're right. It's very much my era. I had just finished spending over five years researching a book about that exact era, the transition from silent to sound. And I'm also a, a big fan of Damien Chazelle, the writer director. I, I, I was on the jury, the Sundance jury years ago that gave him the prize for for Whiplash, you know, his breakthrough movie that mm. got best dramatic feature and have always kind of defended him. La La Land, I really liked um, against against the haters. And then along comes this movie by him that, like you say, is is right in, in my wheelhouse. And I really did not like Babylon at all. I didn't think it worked. I thought it's mixture of period and non-period details and modern slang and whatever it was trying to do with the 1920s and with 
film history I, I couldn't get with. And I agree with you. It was just just way too long. I will say, though, it was it was a big swing. And I respect that. And I will still be on board for whatever he does next. What is it exactly that we're looking at here? We're looking at extreme sexual harassment in the workplace. These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings with a producer, an employer. They were hopeful. They were expecting a serious conversation about their work or a possible project. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. They claim assault and rape. If that can happen to Hollywood actresses, who else is it happening to? Another type of movie that the Academy has liked is embodied in She Said, which I'm glad exists. And as an actual story, not the story put forward by the movie, which wasn't a total failure, just to me, very cold and not actually propulsive in terms of plot. But a movie like She Said would have been the kind of movie they would want to point to and signal and say, this is what we're about, even though chiefly implicated in that is Harvey Weinstein. I look at that, just like I compared Babylon and the Fablemans as having a sort of slot, that the former slot being Hollywood doing a Valentine to itself. This time, it's about feminism and the power of taking back a narrative. So I am heartened by the fact that, not that she said didn't get nominated, I would have thought that was a weird choice, although, man, the critical consensus on that was way, I thought, overblown if you look at the Rotten Tomato score. But Women Talking was, I thought, just a wonderful, fantastic movie that gets at some of the themes that she said was trying to. Yeah, well, if you think that the critical consensus on on she said was was to uh, to one note, then you should read me on it. I didn't review just that movie. I actually wrote on it in conjunction with uh, with women talking and with Tar as the sort of three Me Too adjacent movies of the yeah. season. And to my mind, she said, even though it's the most directly about the Me Too movement and Weinstein, obviously, was the least effective of the three. And I believe the word that I used for it was inert. It's just kind of dramatically inert. You know, it's a movie about people talking on the phone and getting in cars to drive to interviews. And it just fails to imbue what in the book that she said, which I loved, is an incredibly uh, exciting and suspenseful story of reporting. It somehow failed to to convey that on the screen. But I agree that Women Talking is a super smart movie. And I I was very impressed that it got the number of nominations that it did. Although, if you'll allow me one fist shake, even though I'm claiming Oscars neutrality, I really wish Sarah Polly had gotten a Best Director not. It just seems silly that her screenplay that she wrote <laughs> is up for best adapted screenplay. Her movie is up for best picture. And I kind of understand why it didn't get acting nods because it's such an ensemble cast. It's sort of hard to know who to nominate. Right. But if you like the movie so much, give the director a nomination. It just it was a little sad to see all men in the directing category, even though a woman's movie was recognized elsewhere. Yes. And so that's interesting. And I wanted to talk about that. Um what was the statistic that you cited? I saw a tweet of this, that in 95 years, what's the statistic about the dearth of women uh, who were recognized? Oh, just that only three women have ever won. And right. two of them have been in the last couple years, right? Jane Campion won last year. Then I believe it was the year before that that Chloe Zhao won. Uh, and, uh, and before that, there was Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker, right? Which is what, probably over 10 years ago now, 15? And up until then, zero. So yeah, 95 years, <laughs> three women. And uh, winning and, and not being nominated, of course, are, are not the same thing. And this is changing. It's changing faster than it was changing a few years ago because of changes to the Academy's voting body. And that's all for the good. Uh, but it's still, it's it's taking too long. <laughs> and it wouldn't have hurt, given that it's very, very unlikely that a movie like Women Talking will win Best Picture. Just at least give the director some some recognition too. Right. So I, I find this fascinating. Obviously, it's an injustice, but a large part of that injustice is the fact that 
Hollywood is a function of society and society was unjust for all, you know, 65 of those. Well, it's still unjust, but there's really no chance for a woman to advance in the talky era up until, you know, 20 years ago or something. Right. Although Um, there is a chapter in my book, let me do a quick plug for my book, Cameraman, about how powerful women were in the very early film industry. There was this crazy period in the 1910s or so where um, where there were more, there was a greater percentage of women behind the camera in positions of power than in any year since 1917. That's an incredible statistic to me. Like 1917, it bottomed out. And here we are, 2023. We still haven't reached that point that we would have been at pre-1917. So, yeah, there's definitely some work to be done there. So if uh, we're looking at the Academy Awards as what they're saying as a as a uh, signifier of where ho- what Hollywood wants to say about itself, I think Triangle of Sadness was a movie that not many people knew about. I did. I saw it. I loved it for about half. And then I thought it started getting over the top with, say, not just vomiting as the ship took on <laughs> took on waves, but then there was uh, a whole lot of just excrement spewing. And then they were on a desert island, and I think it became a little bit more of uh, a fable than it was before. So I don't mind Triangle of Sadness, but what does it say that of the 10 films, and some of them like Top Gun, they pretty much had to nominate, same with Avatar. So of the films that they really had a choice on, the Academy said, this is one that you should know that the Academy thinks is art. I mean, I think the interesting thing there is that foreign films are starting to make their way into the best picture category, right? All Quiet on the Western Front is there and Triangle of Sadness is there. Parasite, of course, won best picture a couple of years ago. And so the fact that they're not being banished to the uh, the foreign language film category anymore seems like the 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 thing of interest there. I disagree with you though that it's an obvious gimme that uh, Top Gun Maverick and Avatar are going to be on that list. I mean, that was actually part of a there's a push in uh, in that direction too that you know, people want to get more popular titles and movies that people have actually seen and that did well at the box office onto the best picture list as a way of making the Oscars relevant and mm-hmm. you know, keeping it from being a kind of elite institution. So, um so that to me seems like part of the new Oscars as well, although it's not likely that either of those two movies will win. I, th- I mean, one of the big favorites for best picture is sort of both. It's an artful movie that was also extremely successful at the box office. And that's everything everywhere all at once. Feels nice, doesn't it? If nothing matters, then all the pain and guilt you feel for making nothing of your life goes away. Did you love that? I mean, I I don't love it as unreservedly as some critics do. I, I'm excited that it's out there. It's one of those movies that I thoroughly enjoyed seeing. Really fun to see with an audience in a theater. People really responded to it. And it's got tons of great inventive ideas, incredible performances. So I'm happy to see it get um, get all that recognition. There's some stuff about it that doesn't really work for me when it turns into an action movie. I think it's a little bit too long. <laughs> I, think it, yes. I think it ends 15 or 20 minutes after it should have ended. But all of that said, it's sort of like... For the ecosystem of Hollywood, it's a great thing that that movie is out there and that people are loving it. Right. So you thought it was a little overstuffed. You'd have preferred something somewhere once in a while. <laughs> yeah, maybe a, cu- a little bit less of, of everything on the bagel. I mean, my favorite story <laughs> out of Everything Everywhere is just Kihi Kwan's career being completely revitalized by it. Um, and, you know, the fact that Short Round from the Indiana Jones movies now may have a, a, a an Oscar statue in his hand pretty soon. 
Yeah, that's unbelievable. That's fantastic. And he was always in Hollywood and he never, I mean, he, it was hard for him to get parts, but this isn't someone out of nowhere. This is someone in, you know, one of the most seen movies of the eighties. Yeah. Well, he spent a lot of that 30 years in between, um, doing stunt coordination, you know, and working behind the scenes on martial arts stunts and things like that. So, you know, he really comes by all of those stunts that he does and everything everywhere. Honestly, (laughs) you know, he's, he's definitely a guy who has been in the industry behind the scenes working all this time. And he just has so much charisma. I absolutely love him in that movie. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. You know, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means the time stops. Now, Tar was a movie that my perception of it changed after listening to you and Dan Coy's talk about it on a spoiler special. It was it was a gift from heaven that you put those ideas in my head about a way to reinterpret the movie. To me, that was criticism and the actual uh, piece of work interacting in a way that was additive. So tell me about Tar, uh, what it says about its nomination, and is that one of those ones that you're kind of rooting for? I mean, Tar is probably my single favorite movie of the year. So, you know, if, if it were to win Best Picture, I would think that the, the choice was well made in terms of the quality of the film. You know, I don't really ever expect my favorite movie to necessarily be recognized by everyone. But yeah, I mean, Tar just to me was one of the few movies of the year of the last few years that always seem to be a step ahead of the viewer. I mean, not in a condescending way. You know, it's a movie that invites you in as well. It's There's a lot of pleasure in watching it, and it's, it's very funny in parts. But it's just so smart, <laughs> you know, just to have a movie that doesn't tell you what to think at every second and make you realize that you're being told what to think, but that leaves a lot of room for interpretation and makes you want to talk about it and makes you want to see it again. That's a rare thing. I mean, when you talked about, you know, this, um, this podcast I recorded with Dan Coys of Slate, he floated this crazy fan theory about the movie or not quite fan theory, but a, a sort of reinterpretation of the last 40 minutes or so of the movie that I don't necessarily think is the only way to look at it, but that certainly made me literally see things like, like things in the corner of the frame <laughs> that I had not seen until he pointed them out. And I won't, I won't give away so as not to spoil either the movie or his theory exactly what those things were that he pointed out. But if people out there have seen Tar and they want to go down a Tar rabbit hole, go to Slate and read Dan Coyce on Tar. It's not a review. It's a sort of spoiler filled explication of what he thinks is happening toward the end of the movie. It's uh, as a th- as fan theories go, it's tight. It's a tight one. And Todd Field will not rebut it, although he's of the ilk of whatever your interpretation is works for him. I love hearing Todd Field talk about his movie because he just he it's clear that he thought about it for so long. I love that it took him, I think it was 16 years or something since his last movie before Tar. And, uh, you know, he just the, it feels like a movie that has been percolating in someone's brain for a long time and that every detail is is thought through. And like I say, that's just that's something rare to encounter. And uh, and I, I really value it. Dana Stevens writes about film for Slate. She's one of the hosts of the Culture Gab Fest, and she is the author of Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and The Invention of the 20th Century. Thank you so much, Dana. So fun, Mike. There are, of course, so many more movies to talk about, but that's okay because there's more just this week. Every Saturday, we put up a show of the best of the week and the best of the past, but this week, we'll just give you more Dana Stevens. That's tomorrow. Dana Stevens, Slate film critic, author of the book, Cameraman, more Oscars.
Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And now the spiel. Getting Antoine Tiggy with it. Time to talk about Will Smith because he won't be invited to the Oscars anytime soon. Big Willie on my mind. The Antoine Tig, a time for errors, errata, amplification, amplificata. I was talking about the miles per gallon per the Abrams tank. I played Martha Raddatz saying this. The, the Pentagon says they're too cumbersome, complicated, expensive. They only get three miles per gallon. Are they the right tanks to be there? I missed it. But such listeners as Dave Anderson and Tom Warsnop pointed out, nah, the Abrams does not get three miles per gallon. It gets three gallons to go a mile. So not MPG, GPM. Warsnop, what is he good for? Absolutely linking to tank fuel efficiency standards. And this basically destroys my point in a very tank-like fashion that the Abrams was actually more efficient than the Leopard 2, which only gets two miles per gallon. Turns out the Leopard 2 is six times as fuel efficient as the Abrams, which I'm going to say must have been built for considerations outside the environmental. I also want to note that this tank coverage occurred in a week with other tank coverage, which was my playing a clip of Jacinda Ardern saying, she was quitting the prime ministership of New Zealand because she had nothing left in the tank. So I went double tanks on you and you withstood my assault. I also want to note, I'm kind of proud of myself because I did all this tank coverage and only once, maybe 1.5 times, engaged in a tanks but no tanks type pun. Like an M1 Abrams versus a Russian T-80, that would be just too easy. But maybe a pun would have worked better than this Volodymyr Zelensky attempt of linking tanks to thanks. Hundreds of thank you are not hundreds of tanks. I don't want to tell Zelensky how to do his job. He's doing it pretty well. Really, really rising above expectations. But could have said something like, and while I appreciate your thanks, we have none of your tanks. Right? Or... While I appreciate the thanks you said, what about the thanks you pledged? Maybe that's too Johnny Cochran. I don't know. There's just so little about the war effort that I could advise Zelensky on. Maybe I could be something of an ambassador without portfolio of puns. Citizen Q wrote in, good point, about a segment I did, a spiel I did about white mass shooters and that they're underrepresented compared to whites in the population. And here's what he wrote. 55% of mass shootings involving four or more fatalities being perpetrated by white shooters. That is something serious going on with white shooters. It may even be possible that mass shootings are the most quote unquote white violent crime category. I did a quick survey of crime stats and couldn't find a violent crime category where white men were more strongly represented than the category of mass 
mass shootings. That is interesting. That is a truly interesting point I hadn't considered and should have. Then there was the segment with James Vincent, the author of Beyond Measure, which rightly sparked reaction and delight. Dan Levy alerted me to the fact that the U.S. had its own definition of foot. It was pretty close to the international definition. The U.S. defined it by a fraction, whereas internationally they just went with 0.3048 meters. So the difference in the U.S. and the international definition turns out to have been one hundredth of a foot per mile. Okay, it has been resolved as of Jan 1, 2023, the U.S. kicked its foot to the curb. We have joined the community of nations, even if progress is inch by less than one-tenth of an inch. We all have the same definition now. Gil Young wrote in to tell me he attended the first metric NCAA college football game. In 1977, Carleton College played St. Olaf College, and instead of the usual dimensions of the field, they went with a field 100 meters long and 50 meters wide with 10 meter wide end zones. Carleton, where Gill attended, lost 43 to nothing. I guess they needed to give 110.002% as the proper conversion required. M. Dizzle 86 wrote in on the subject of Poroncusima, poroncusima, which is the distance between reindeer urinations. And when I was talking about a reindeer with a UTI throwing off the calculations, he said, or M. Dizzle, they said that uh, I got it wrong. You'd get there faster if you had a reindeer peeing all the time because your perception of how many poroncusima per hour you should go would be off and you'd be uh, hurried, I'd say, no, you'd have to wait all this time for Prancer to tinkle. Which brings me to the awarding of the Lobstars. It's a tough showdown, a showdown between just producers. Porincusma, the distance a reindeer takes between having to urinate. But I got a note from Pierre Bienname, former just producer Pierre Bienname, who heard that reference as how long it takes for a reindeer to pee-pee. How long it takes between reindeer peepees is what I was trying to say. Maybe I said it wrong. But Pierre helpfully gave me a chart, a graphic, indicating that most mammals take 21 seconds to urinate, regardless of size. Pierre is a background in science reporting. But I have a background of being a mammal. So what I did was I took a stopwatch with me every time I had to uh, eliminate, pass water, and it was highly variable. This, of course, makes sense. I'm not assailing Pierre's chart or his, uh, his reliance on science, but it does bring up a point. Can I give a lobster to a former producer? Would this be fair? Well, as I was pondering this, I was thinking about who gets the lobster of the Antoine Tig, and the process lately has been for producer Corey Wara to put together a list of everyone who wrote in on the website, everyone who wrote in on Reddit, um, everyone who emailed at the gist at mikepesca.com. And I found this email that I hadn't come across, which is great. This is why producers put together a list of all the correspondents. Hello, Mike. Big fan of the show. In fact, I work on your show. Crazy, right? I looked down. Yeah, this was Corey who had snuck a letter into the mix. He writes, well, I'm writing you for the correction that birthday cake is actually a flavor. If anything, the birthday cake flavor is just a rebranding of vanilla. Birthday cake is a rebranding to make it cool to millennials like myself to remind us of a simpler time. You know, he's right. I quibbled with birthday cake as being a flavor. I said it's uh, 
It's an occasion, you know, vanilla is a flavor. Sprinkles are a decoration or an ornament, but, you know, birthday cake shouldn't be a flavor. It is a flavor. Let's not fight it. And he's right. It's just basically vanilla and vanilla-ish icing. Very sweet vanilla. And then, and this is what makes Corey a great audio producer, he provided at the end of his email this audio tag. Yes, we remember Preston Blake, a man with faith no man could shake. A strength no man could break, a character no man could fake. For goodness sake, let's eat some cake. And that's the Reverend Al Sharpton from the film Mr. Deeds. As linked in a doc, that's one of my regular reads. So to the man who's part sounding board and part guinea pig, producer Corey War as the lobstar of this Antoine Tig. And that's it for today's show. The gist is lobstarred by lobstar Corey Wara. Joel Patterson, he's going to get it one day. He's the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeepru, Dupru, and thanks for listening.